Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and I want to welcome everyone to this episode of the show. As a way to thank the listeners for helping me grow this podcast over the years, I'm going to continue a raffle option for all of you to have a chance to win a free consultation with me. So it's a 30-minute consultation that I will raffle off once per month. All you have to do to enter is share the episodes that you enjoy on whatever platform you find most interesting. The only thing I ask you to do is if it's a social media channel, make sure you tag me so I see it and can save that and enter in the raffle. Or if it's somewhere else that you can't tag me at, take a screenshot and send that to me at hpopodcast at gmail.com. You can also enter the raffle by writing a show review on your favorite podcast listening platform. So if you do that, Take the screenshot, send it to hbopodcast at gmail.com, and I will enter you in that monthly raffle. I actually have two winners to announce as I'm playing a little bit of catch up here on the raffle. The winners are Bruce Huckfelt, who promoted the show on X, and Jackson Richards, who promoted the show on Instagram Stories. I will shoot both of you a DM to get you set up for your free consultation. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this podcast sponsors include S-Fuels. S-Fuels is offering a free 30-serving pack of their train product, but there are only 50 available, so hurry up. Head over to sfuelsgolonger.com, add the train product to your cart, enter promo code HPOTRAIN to get it for free and free shipping. Element Electrolytes, they have a free sample pack offer for you. John G Apparel has a 10% offer for you. And Delta G Ketones has a 20% off and free consultation offer for you. Links and details can be found in the show notes and the episode landing page. You can also check out a full description of how I use all of these products in my own training and racing at the end of this podcast episode. Also, I'm excited to announce that I launched a new group coaching option. So to go along with my personalized one-on-one coaching options and my pre-made plans that I have on my website at ZachBitter.com, this year I'm starting a group of online endurance runners who want to work with me in a slightly different model. So this model is set up so that whether you're a beginner or advanced, you can join. Whether you're training for something like a 5K or something as far as a 200 plus miler, you are welcome and this setup will help you reach your goals. The way I have it set up is if you subscribe, you will have access to my full catalog of training plans which range from beginner 5K all the way up to advanced 200 plus miles. Along with that plan that you're going to use, you will have access to a weekly group meeting where you can ask questions about training, you can ask about adjustments to the plan to make it more personalized to you, you can engage with the other group members if you want. We'll get you all set up and ready to really personalize that plan to make sure that you're heading in the right direction for your event. Also, you will have access to office hours where if you have something you want to ask and you want to just hop in and ask a question, you'll be given access to that as well. I will be bringing in guest speakers who have a deep understanding of specific topics and things that we'll use to better your training and recovery process throughout the course of the year. 
as well as a private forum for all the members to engage with one another, share stories, share training tips, and just house a lot of the information that we'll go over on the daily and weekly basis as you're pursuing your race goals. So if you're interested in checking that out, just head to my website at zachbitter.com, go to the coaching tab. From there, you'll be directed to the team coaching option, and you can sign up for that and get onboarded to join the group. If you're interested in keeping up with what I'm up to, please give me a follow on some of my socials. Follow me on Instagram at Zach Bitter, on X, Twitter at ZBitter, and check out the brand new HPO podcast handles, which are just at HPO podcast on Instagram and X slash Twitter. Of course, all this stuff can be found quite easily on my website, which is the main landing page for everything I do at ZachBitter.com. Brady, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. Glad to be on. Yeah, it's so much fun to do these in person now. For sure. I think this is actually <laughs> one of the first in-person podcasts I've done. Um, when I started doing my podcast, I did like a couple in-person interviews, and then it was mm-hmm. COVID, boom, two years of Zoom. Right. Now. Everybody's yeah. used to that, but um, it's cool <laughs> to be doing it in person. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. We got some cool topics to talk about, too. I did actually have um, a guest present for you because I noticed on... Twitter X, you were getting uh, getting some heat from the the hardcore keto folks about your granola. So <laughs> I went ahead and saved you uh, something that can give you a little camouflage wow, from those incredible. guys when they come after there you. There we go. Some, some keto S-U- granola for keto you. Keto granola, awesome! <laughs> Can't wait to try. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, kind of a topic we're probably going to talk about some low carb stuff. I think um, we were actually talking about this probably almost a year ago when it first came out. Um, and here we are on the podcast now, but there was that study. It had to have been spring last year, maybe. I where think so. Yeah, it Ooh. was a uh, Noakes, Kutnik, Plues, and some other authors that looked at um, low. It was actually strict ketogenic. I think they were like fifty grams of yeah, carbohydrate, less than fifty a day. Uh huh. And they had what I thought was an interesting kind of look into just performance with that, as well as some other things, and. I want to just jump in with that and see what you th- think about that because, for one, my my assumption or my uh, my my prediction is that like ketogenic endurance is like a step too far in most cases. You can always have like the individual scenario where like you have someone who has some sort of other thing clear up because for whatever reason they went on a ketogenic diet, maybe lost weight, now they're running faster because whatever benefit they got from that outweighed whatever potential performance they were going to lose kind of on the top end. Whereas when this study came out, I felt like at least the kind of the the conversation around it was kind of like trying to maybe poke that a little bit too, where it was like, okay, these guys are on essentially 50 grams of carbohydrate per day and noticing no loss in performance with what would be probably a reasonably well-structured VO2 max workout, which would be the ones where I would start to think you're going to run into some trouble with that. Um, my, my, uh, curiosity with these stuff is always, I want to see it in an actual training program. So like, and they're working with what they can as the researchers, cause there's only so much you can do. But like, I always wonder when you have like these single workout sessions that are spread out by like a week plus the way I look at it is if you put me on strict ketogenic diet, I can go and just crush a 400 meter repeat workout. But if I had to reproduce that workout, two or three times in like a five to seven day period, I'm going to start noticing it 
in subsequent workouts in terms of kind of how my performance goes. So I'm always, when I see studies that have like no performance dip and it's a single session or multiple sessions, but spread out with a lot of time in between, I'm just like, I need to see those on like hard, easy, hard structure or like really close proximity before I'm really looking to kind of go or th consider going down to 50 grams for sure. But I'm curious what your thoughts are with some of that. Yeah, that was a, a very interesting study. I think it was a good, maybe like a proof of concept. And like, like you said, I think I had the same, not necessarily like the criticisms, but the same, um, you know, I want to see like something maybe longer in duration. That's kind of always like the, uh, the initial nitpick right. about yeah. everybody. Well, if it <laughs> not was long only enough, like a week yeah. longer, you know, they would have uh, seen the decrements in performance mm -hmm. or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think it was cool to see at least the preserved performance. They did that. Like you said, they, I think it was the six times eight hundred meter yeah. repeated sprints. Mm -hmm. And then they did the mile time trial. So like you said, I think that, and you also, you brought up something on maybe a couple po other podcasts where you were talking about this study. And I think it's important to look at like keto, how would it fit into a training regimen where you're like extending this out over, you know, months to even like years where training quality mm -hmm. might actually be compromised because I don't think there were a ton of details maybe on like the training regimen that they mm -hmm. were doing during the study, but it's like, you know, these guys were training pretty, pretty hard. I think 50 kilometers a week is like yeah, what they were running. 30, so that's you know, a decent amount of volume and stuff. But, um, I think it's important to, you know, try to think about like, you know, if, if this was another month longer, are they able to maintain their training quality? And then how is that going to affect the sprint ability or whatever? Um, mm -hmm. I also feel like, like you said, six by 800 and a mile, you can kind of gut that out, you know, mm -hmm. with just the, the ketogenic approach. And, um, you know, could you do that tomorrow? Could you do that? if you had to do the same thing, you know, even in like an hour or so, like what's your recovery capacity yeah. like? So I had, you know, some of the similar, um, similar criticisms of that study and thinking about it, but what stuck out, I think to me, and maybe we can talk about this aside from the performance, but it almost was like a study that looked at two things. They wanted to look at the performance, I guess, but I think some of the some health, the so. interesting things with that study were mm -hmm. the health parameters that like stuck out with, with some of those athletes. So I think it's important to note that it was only 10, I think they had 10 participants in that mm -hmm. study. So it wasn't, it wasn't a ton of, um, you know, participants in the study, but I think it was a third of them. So 30%, three participants or whatever had pre-diabetic yeah. blood glucose uh, mm -hmm. readings, which was kind of surprising. You know, they were very fit. I think yeah. they had like a VO2 max of 60. They were mm -hmm. 40 years old. So not like super, you know, super old or anything like that. Um, but they were so pretty young, healthy, but pre-diabetic blood glucose levels which were essentially reversed by the ketogenic diet, which I thought was you know, mm -hmm. kind of interesting. So I think it goes to show, it was kind of a maybe a wake up call that like, oh, just because you're fit, right. just because you're an athlete, doesn't mean you're necessarily like incredibly healthy, um, that you're like in superior metabolic health, while you might be in like superior uh, physical health mm -hmm. for kind of like your age. So that was one of the things that stuck out to me. And if, you're able at that age to maintain kind of your performance on the ketogenic diet, perhaps then you, the health, the metabolic benefits are kind of the, not the sacrifice that, you know, it's like willing to make, but like something that people should consider doing. Cause um, if you're training and eating, you know, what was it on the high carb diet? They were eating, I think 380 mm -hmm. grams of carbohydrates per day. So if you're on, you know, a high carb diet for performance, but it's not really, boosting your performance that much yeah. at that age and at that kind of level of, um, at that level of competition, if it's not boosting it that much over a ketogenic diet, then maybe it's not like a sacrifice worth making if you're quote unquote pre-diabetic. Um, but the glycemic control improvements during that were, 
I think one of the interesting things um, mm -hmm. that were an important part of the discussion along with like the, the training variables. Yeah. And I think another topic we'll get into in a bit here is like, if that would pan out to extrapolate to the wider population of essentially 30% endurance athletes on a high carbohydrate diet are going to be in a pre-diabetic range nutritionally. Uh, well, and I should be, we should be also like, I think the participants maintained or even lost a little weight too. So it was like, that was in the presence. It wasn't like they were overeating mm -hmm. and driving that from just like an excessive consumption. So it was actually pretty compelling in my mind in terms of like, I would have never guessed 30% were going to test at a energy stable or energy reduced um, uh, scenario like that. So, but yeah, if that would extrapolate out, then essentially we'd be looking at like 30% of the population who's going to put in what I would consider like for, for the average person, a, a pretty solid training structure, 40 miles, I think somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, would want to consider their dietary input of what they want to do, if they want to follow the more standard kind of moderate to high carbohydrate approach, or if that's going to actually be something that they should be concerned with. Um, and, and what's actually driving it too? like, are those people pre-diabetic without the running? Mm -hmm. I wonder if they are, if not, if there's something that there's like a, some sort of like a interplay between the running and the carbohydrates, or if they're, if that's just, if they'd be pre-diabetic anyway, with uh, a moderate carbohydrate diet, energy controlled at like less activity or if, or a different sport altogether, maybe if they did strength work, they would have had no issues. And it was just a running wasn't their like best health or health marker for, for what they should be doing with their active hours. Yeah, for sure. We didn't, you know, have a lot of uh, information about their, like, what's their athletic history like? Cause they mm -hmm. were like 40. So were they, yeah. were they lifetime athletes? Did they mm -hmm. pick up running like later on in age? So, um, mm -hmm. I would assume like given that they're, they were pretty talented and they had like a pretty high VO2 max that they probably were like lifelong endurance yeah. athletes. But, um, you know, maybe that's somewhere like in the supplementary materials that I missed, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's also interesting though, that like that study I think was almost like the two extremes, you know, like you said, I think there's a difference between low carb mm -hmm. for endurance performance, like, which I think is like something like you practice versus strict keto. I mean, less than 50 grams of carbohydrates a day is like, you know, that's the classic definition of like keto. So it's like, mm -hmm. do we have to, and then the, the high carb arm in that study was 380, which, yeah. you know, I, most days, I don't consider myself low carb, but most days I don't probably eat 400 grams of carbohydrates right. in a day. So like, what's like, what does like the middle look like? <laughs> yeah. Can we, can we have good blood glucose control? while also maximizing performance on 150 grams of carbs per day. Like, mm -hmm. I think that could probably be the case. Like, you don't need to be eating 400, 500, 600 grams of carbs a day, mm -hmm. especially, I think, given what they were doing for training. I mean, 400 carbs a day for, you know, what, 50 kilometers a week, that's like 30-ish miles of running. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not a ton of running that they're doing, but it's a decent amount. So mm -hmm. it's like questioning whether you need, whether you need that much, whether the high-carb arm was... I think I'm sure they designed it to be like, you know, on both different sides of the spectrum, opposite mm -hmm. ends of the spectrum. It would have been cool, like in a perfect world, if they had all the resources to study like the whole spectrum from mm -hmm. high carb to strict keto and see like, is there like a breaking point where you get below a certain amount or may maybe it would be a percentage or gram total based on lifestyle factors that, okay, now you're no longer, or where's the spot you, where you break free from pre-diabetic and now if you just maintain <laughs> here, you're, you're fine. But yeah, unfortunately, we kind of have two, like you said, two polar ends. But yeah, my guess is somewhere between strict keto and high carb is a safe spot. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't probably have to be strict. Um, but 
Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I guess uh, I think it was um, Kutnik I, when I had him on the podcast. He said that there was maybe some follow-up studies to that one that they have in the works. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with the results from this and kind of build from it. Yeah, hopefully they do something. Everybody always wants to see like studies in females because it's all right. typically, you know, initially they just yeah. get like males who are easier to recruit apparently, right, recruit yeah. apparently but um, <laughs> doing the study in males. But I think something else interesting about that study was just like what's like the fat oxidation measures that they mm. that they had. I mean, Kutnik was posting and, you know, we don't know what other labs like around the world and stuff I measured, but he was posting a couple tweets about like how some of the highest fat oxidation um, rates that ever were ever measured uh, in that study. So like 1.86 grams or something mm-hmm. per per minute, I think, was what yeah. some of the guys hit during the repeated sprints. Um, and I know I know you were part of like the faster study and, you know, I haven't. I haven't read that study in a while, but I'm not sure what like the fat ox rates during that study look like during the exercise. But I mean, the fact that some of those dudes, even the guys who were pre-diabetic, um, they responded actually most to like the low carb diet. So he even said, or in the study, they said, you know, the guys who were highest blood glucose levels responded best to that low carbohydrate diet. And they had some of the highest fat oxidation rates. So it seemed that like we always talk about reversing diabetes, or reversing pre-diabetes. It's like they were heavily responsive to that low carb diet. And then the fat ox rates during exercise exceeding even like 85% of mm-hmm. VO2 max, which kind of goes against some of like the classic exercise metabolism yeah. stuff. Even they're like above 85% um, VO2 max fat oxidation is supposed to just shut off. Yeah. yeah. Um, and these guys were maximizing their fat oxidation at like over 85% VO2 max. So kind of shifts the way I think we think about low carb performance. So even independent of what you and I were talking about at the onset of this study, uh, talking about the study where we were talking about the performance during the mile or during the repeated sprints. Those are important, but, you know, showing that we can keep oxidizing fat at like over 85% of VO2 max is kind of important because I think it at least lends a theory to the fact that, oh, maybe ketogenic diets or even low carb diets can support kind of this higher, at least, intensity like exercise i think that's i think that's kind of cool and reassuring for people like yourself or anybody who's trying to like do low carb and or even experiment with like low carb for performance yeah we're not totally shooting ourselves in the foot (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly so with the faster study i think i think the peak fat ox for those the average was 1.53 grams per minute Mm -hmm. i just remember that because mine was 1.56 and i remember i was like just a hair above the average and that was a 10 low low carb and 10 high carb the parameters there were 10 percent carbohydrate intake so mm-hmm. in theory you're working with ultra marathon runners so right. a 10 percent could exceed 50 grams so maybe sure. that would be why those guys were driving higher because they were strictly sticking to mm-hmm. 50 grams but um but yeah i mean it's like it's it's another part too where on the other side of that is just like how high do you really need your fat oxidation rates to be and like from a, I mean, you can look at this through a few different lenses, but from, for me, from a performance standpoint, like I'm interested in that because like, if I know the intensity I'm going to race at and I know where my fat oxidation rates are along that spectrum, I can kind of basically predict what I'm going to need from a fueling standpoint. So like when I ran my fastest hundred miler, I actually used that data and I was like, okay, at, at, at my hundred mile intensity, based on this, this fat ox test, I'm going to be burning like 80 to 90% fat. 10 to 20% carbohydrate. So then at that point, I'm looking at it nine miles per hour, it's probably 800 to 1,000 calories per hour is going to be the work output. Then it's like, okay, you can run the numbers on that. You can actually get within range of, you know, at least like 
where is a spot where I can safely assume there's not going to be like a glycogen issue mm -hmm. going on here. And I, I pin that to like 40 grams. It's like if I get 40 grams per hour in at those fat ox rates, there's just no way I'm going to be dipping far enough in. Uh, so like I find that stuff interesting because we also have on the other side of the spectrum right now, a lot of gut training mm -hmm. research and information where I, I actually can't help but laugh because it's kind of like this scenario where like the last decade or so you had kind of the low carb ketogenic movement and they're saying like, you know, leaning on a lot of anecdotes, some research and just trying to kind of like flip this, this, the script to some narrative. And you know, you get the people who are like gung ho about it, obviously they, they see one study and they're gonna look at everything that's good mm -hmm. about it. And then you get the people who are critics, they're gonna look at everything that's bad about it or what did they miss? And, and now you have like the gut training, which is total opposite of the spectrum. So you get like the same exact thing. It's like, this isn't really proven yet either. But now we have a group of people who are like, let's get 120 plus grams per hour in. <laughs> and then another group that's just getting as skeptical as possible about the health ramifications and just like, do you actually need that much? What value does that actually provide? And we kind of have like that side of the spectrum kind of flaring up now too. So it's kind of an interesting time for endurance sports and fueling yeah it really is i know i was reading um a couple of the studies there is not a lot like you said regarding like the gut training but there mm -hmm. i was reading some of the studies and then i know alex hutchinson had posted a few blog posts i was reading outside online about like just the gut training and stuff and the mm -hmm. popularity of like 100 120 is like what athletes are trying he's like they're trying to eat as many carbs as possible now basically like yeah. during the race and shove as many as you can in so it's interesting and i mean gut training does seem to work um i personally like haven't done a lot of it because at this stage in my like running career i haven't done anything exceeding even like a marathon so it's like mm. you know something to experiment with with like longer distances but yeah i mean there's definitely good evidence that i don't think that you can completely diminish it almost seems like you're just tolerating a bit more gi like less gi distress versus like you're going to eliminate gi distress with gut right. training i mean if you're trying to eat 100 120 grams of carbs per hour you're going to have some like gastrointestinal distress. I think, mm -hmm. um, there was, I think a study where they did, um, it was like an hour long run and they did 90, it was just 90 per mm -hmm. hour, which is still a pretty decent amount. Um, 90 per hour. And then they trained them for a month. And so they were still experiencing GI symptoms, but they weren't as severe. So I think, you know, perhaps longer training gut, uh, gut training study might have produced less GI symptoms. But I mean, at some point, I read somewhere they were like an ultra marathon at some point it just turns into like an eating competition yeah, yeah. like who can just like stomach the most and like fuel their body right. to, to do that so um but it's interesting and i think that there are i think eventually we'll begin to start seeing these formulations where they're going to mix carbohydrates for certain things to try to like either enhance their absorption or mm -hmm. enhance their ability to you know maybe the body's ability to utilize carbohydrates to try to like yeah. fit them in i guess um i mean there's there's definitely have to be like some sort of limit to that but um it'll be interesting to see how kind of performance responds to it because i think that there's an assumption that like more carbs is going to make you run faster be able to go longer but i definitely think there's a point where it's like either diminishing returns you're eating too many mm -hmm. carbohydrates and it's just going to lead to more gi distress or like it's just you know what, what's the is there a difference between 100 to 120 can your body even absorb that many carbohydrates and use that many carbohydrates mm -hmm. um and like you said, depending on the exercise intensity, I mean, unless you're maxing out redlining, you know, you're not going to be using 100% carbohydrates. So if I'm mm -hmm. eating 90 grams of carbs per hour, but I'm at 
85%, but I'm still oxidizing a lot of fat. Like, well, mm -hmm. what's the point of shoving all these carbs right. in there? Do you even, do you even like need that? So, mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned something a while ago that I've had this thought or I've been thinking about this concept a lot. Like everybody always talks about the wall yeah. and like the marathon you hit the wall because like, Oh, our body has about, you know, 20, 2200, 2400 stored kcal worth of, of glycogen. So mm -hmm. marathons, 26 miles, you run 20 miles, you burn 100 kcals, then you bonk because you run out of glycogen. Yeah. But it's like that concept always seemed flawed to me. And yeah. based on what we know now, like it is flawed because you and I have talked about this a lot where you're never you're never glycogen depleted. Yeah, that's dead. You never <laughs> run out of all – you would be dead if you ran out of all your glycogen. So I think it's like – 62%, once you get down to mm -hmm. about like 62% of your glycogen is kind of where your body's going to start to bonk. Cause it's like mm -hmm. a preserve, it's a preservation yep. mechanism at that point. Like your brain, your brain needs, you know, the blood glucose. So your body's not gonna let you dip, dip below that. Um, but even then, the, just the idea of hitting the wall never made sense. Cause even if you were using, I mean, you're not using 100% glycogen for that entire 20 miles, you're going to be using right. some fat depending on your, <clears throat> your level of fat oxidation or fat adaptation. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of never made sense. And I think, um, you're just going back to like the gut training thing and how much, how many carbs can you eat? It's a balance and like doing equations, you know, you don't have to go as extreme maybe as you might in calculating yeah. like this many grams per hour based on my fat ox rate, you know, that data. So it's pretty cool. But, um, you know, I mean, it'd be easy to, for people to see like at what intensity, what's the ratio that you're burning and like, mm -hmm. you can do these calculations. Um, but it's interesting kind of movement, as you mentioned, uh, maybe towards a carbohydrate pro carbohydrate approach now. Yeah. And, and where I think it gets really interesting is when you look at the different populations. So if you take, or where, where I think people kind of get confused is like, if you take someone who's just a, like a world-class endurance athlete, their work output at like their aerobic threshold is insane. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at, if you look, just look at, I think Lance Armstrong was just on Peter Atia's podcast. I don't know if you listened to that or not, but he was, they were talking about like how much Watts he was producing at his peak. And it, it's just an insane it amount. Wild, yeah. So like when you think about like the, when you, when you get to that degree where you got these athletes that are able to, at a sustainable intensity, produce outputs of like north of a thousand calories an hour. And you know, they're up to and beyond their aerobic threshold. And if we take a moderate high carb athlete, we're probably a 50, 50 split around aerobic mm -hmm. threshold. So like you can get scenarios where you might need five, 600 calories with a carbohydrate to sustain that activity for a significant amount of time. Once you start getting to that, like 62% muscle glycogen mm -hmm. point. So to some degree it is a math equation, but in order to run it properly, you kind of know your fat oxidation rates. So I always think that's like the next interesting piece of the puzzle is like, um, you know, maybe the value add for an endurance athlete is just go and get a metabolic heart test on and find out where that is. And if you don't change anything drastically with your diet, then you can probably safely assume what you're going to need. And if you extrapolate it out far enough, you can, you can know like, well, if it's a short race, I don't really have to worry about glycogen depletion to a large degree. If it is, you know, an ultra marathon or something like that, maybe you do. Um, and then it's just to what degree are you someone like myself who can get by on like 40 grams because mm -hmm. of the high fat ox rates? Or are you like, some of these guys, I'm actually having um, Hayden Hawks just won the Black Cannon 100K, mm. which is one of the most competitive 100Ks in the world right now. And uh, he released his uh, inter-race fueling and hydration. There was some really interesting stuff in there. I think he was 109 grams of carbohydrate wow. per hour. Uh, but the thing that actually really surprised me was he, only dr he drank less than 500 milliliters of fluid per hour for seven and a half hours. Mm. So 
he was on the the low end. It wasn't like super hot. It was pretty nice temperatures, I think, for running. But I thought that was pretty low, especially when you consider how much carbohydrate was taken in. Because like my understanding is, the more carb you take in, the more fluid you probably need to right. go along with it. So I'm going to ask him about that if there was something that I missed in that that data spreadsheet. But anyway, it, it was like you know he, he, at at the intensity he was running with. Uh, I assume he's on a high carbohydrate diet. I know he's been into like the gut training stuff so i want to talk to him about that in terms of just like how he came up with that number if that was just what ended up playing out Mm -hmm. on the day or if he was specifically targeting that just north of 100 grams uh and dig in because um we have uh other ultra runners who are doing that now too the most interesting one is maybe killian journey who the reason he's more interesting to me is because he doesn't do gut training Mm -hmm. he just goes with 100 grams though on race day For uh, he, there was a, a breakdown of his fueling for um, alt, uh, what was it? UTMB Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, and he was like 100 grams per hour for mm. around 19 hours. So it's like that's where I start to get curious because I, I mean, I could do no gut training and it could get away with 100 grams for an hour or for two hours right. without having any noticeable issues. But if I got to do that for 19 hours in a <laughs> row, I'm not. I'm gonna have to do some gut training if I want to do that. Sure. But he he doesn't. I guess. I guess he actually kind of almost is like intentionally fuels very minimally in training and does these really long sessions with very little fuel, mm. and then but on race day goes hyper high on that. So yeah. Some. I mean. We obviously know he's like a freak of nature, but like yeah. some people, I think that just, I think that all goes and just like points out the importance of doing like experiments yourself and like individual, indiv- mm-hmm. individual variability and like your physiology. I mean, somebody, you might be a higher fat burner than another ultra guy who's going to just be like smashing the carbs during an ultra you mm-hmm. know, marathon. And so like, like you said, people can go and if they're interested, you can go and see what your like fat oxidation and carbohydrate oxidation rates are during a test and like use that to inform your training. But it's like, yeah, the, there are hydration guidelines. There are carbohydrate guidelines for athletes, but like, mm-hmm. so that's, you know, for av- on average, that's going to work for like most athletes. It might not work for you. It might not work for everybody. Um, some people can't like eat anything, you know, mm-hmm. during or before a race. And it's like, we're well, going to have to figure out a way to, to kind of bypass that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that everybody can, can respond differently and, Doing no gut training and being able to tolerate that. I mean, it's just, you know, maybe he just got, he just got lucky with that. Uh, yeah. Being able to do that. I mean, I'm, I say lucky, but he obviously is like doing incredible like training runs. And I'm sure there's something t- to what he's doing that allows him to not have to gut train. But, you know, mm-hmm. who knows what that might be. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want to be careful with the outliers in terms of how right. you structure your stuff, which is also interesting because when you look at just, I mean, the, the most basic data that has kind of gotten pushed around in the endurance world for a while is like 90 grams per hour where you have like, and this is, I guess, been altered to some degree, but originally it was like 60 grams, 30 grams from a, um, like a, a maltodextrin to a, uh, fructose mm-hmm. spread. So you can kind of have the pathways allow you to get 90, whereas by themselves, you'd only be able to do, you'd have to do less than that. Whereas now I think you can technically do more fructose without having to worry about it. But anyway, it was like you know, 90 grams is an average. So are there people that can do 120 and absorb it? Probably. Right. Are there people who can only do 60? Yeah, that's probably also true. So uh, you, at some, at a certain point when you get like Tour de France athletes, it's probably going to start selecting for that to mm-hmm. some degree where everything lines up by the time you find yourself winning the Tour de France or competing at the Tour de France. So maybe the majority of those guys are just able to absorb a higher amount of carbohydrate than what we would expect and therefore getting up to those 120 plus grams is going to be beneficial. 
uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Like, eventually, are we going to get to a point where like the ability to win a race is just going to come down to like who can who can fuel the most and who can tolerate the most? I mean, you think that it would eventually maybe like get to that point where you know everybody's lining up at the line, everybody's got a freaking super high VO two max, everybody has the latest technology in the super shoes, mm-hmm. everybody has yeah. you know the optimal like wind resistant cl- or you know the aerodynamic clothing and stuff it's like we're all on a level playing field everybody has the latest in nutrition everybody has the latest in training it's like when it comes to race day like is it just going to be like who can absorb and who can like fuel the best during mm-hmm. the race like is it just going to become a uh, like a f1 race where like yeah. the pit stops are just like the yeah. most important aspect where you just got to fuel yourself and get to the line i mean it's kind of interesting and like are the best athletes guys like kipchoge i mean is he able, he's obviously an incredibly talented runner, but like something about him makes him special to like break that two hour marathon barrier. Is it because he's able to, you know, take in 120 grams per minute? Cause like that might be required to mm-hmm. break the two hour marathon barrier. Um, I think there was, there was a recent study and I didn't read it, but I was reading a synopsis of it where they, they ran models basically about like what elite athletes would have to eat to break the two hour marathon barrier. And it mm-hmm. was something in the range of like 100 to 120. So really? that's basically saying like, if you can't, if you can't take that in during, you know, your marathon, then you have no shot at, right. at breaking the two hour marathon barrier. Cause that's just like the fuel required yeah. required to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, the listeners can just probably assume they're not breaking a two hour marathon. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, man. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Broken dreams for me, I guess, and everyone else listening. <laughs> yeah. The other interesting side of just kind of like running those numbers too, is when you step away from the elite athletes and you think of like, what is the output that the, a normal average person mm-hmm. training for a marathon is going to produce where I think is where you we're going to see the backlash of the gut training stuff and the high fueling strategies because it's like yeah you get someone like Kipchoge and some of these guys who are well north of a thousand calories per hours of work and maybe need that mm. when they're following a moderate high carbohydrate diet but then you take the average person who they might be getting they might be much closer to say like six seven hundred mm-hmm. calories per hour so for them, it's like the amount of energy output they're doing per hour may only be the carbohydrate side of the elite athlete from a total energy. So for them, it's like they don't need to be going anywhere near that right. in order to meet the demands of the, the job. So like how much more digestive issues are we going to get with that population versus the highly tuned, like stress tested over and over again in training elite athlete where they know like what their body's going to probably do with the inputs they're giving it. Yeah, the pipeline from like the elite athletes down to just your, you know, weekend warriors or whatever is like always interesting. And that's where the criticism, mm-hmm. you know, everybody loves to criticize Gatorade. It's like, oh, you, you know, yeah. you don't need Gatorade to fuel your like 5K <laughs> and stuff like that. Well, it's like, it wasn't created for that. I mean, I know they're marketing right. for anybody who does like sports, but yeah, it is interesting. I'm sure there will be backlash because you're going to get the average person thinking they need to, you know, take in 100, 120 grams per hour when they don't. So I think that's where the importance of like, I don't know, just the communication mm-hmm. <laughs> and things, science communication and, th- and things like that come into play. Um, yep. And throwing 30% <laughs> pre-diabetic and we got a, a health emergency on our hands. <laughs> yeah, I know. We got to, we got to find a balance somewhere. We're like swinging to the extremes, you know? Yeah. But, it, it is interesting. I wonder too, like how much like improvements in wearables and stuff is going to help like push this stuff too. So like, I mean, continuous glucose monitors have been on the market for a while. I think they need work still in terms of how well they predict what you would want to do during like an endurance race, but we're going to see continuous ketone monitors. I think those already exist. They just mm-hmm. haven't hit the 
the, the mainstream or the public market yet. But I mean, I can see a scenario where like you have that data and it's accurate enough in a quick enough amount of time where you know like your lactate, you know your blood glucose, you know your, your ketones mm-hmm. and you're fueling based on the numbers that are showing up on that. Or you're stressing it in training with those numbers and then you're putting together your plan for race day that you do maybe a little less um, by the watch or by the wearable, but you just know from all the data you've collected in training what your needs are going to be at what frequency and stuff. Uh, I think that's going to be really interesting too. Yeah, I mean, and all that, I mean, a lot of that stuff is available like for people to do, which is the coolest thing now because it's like you don't, you don't like really have to guess anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. even regarding, like you said, there's, you know, continuous ketone, continuous lactate monitors. Eventually, those are obviously going to become a thing just kind of like you can get a CGM commercially pretty much available now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, going to something like sweat, you can go get a sweat test yeah. to determine your yeah. sodium and potassium excretion. So there you can then figure out how much electrolytes you need, how much, you know, water intake you need. Obviously that will change, you know, if you do a sweat test in the humid environment, it's going to be different, but nonetheless, like you can determine what your hydration needs are. I mean, you can really quantify, even if you're not like a professional athlete, if you're just doing like road races on the weekend, like you can quantify what you need. You can quantify how it's impacting your body. So I think we're in a, we're in a super cool, like a time period to be like an athlete or just to be like a, to be a metabolic athlete or like a regular athlete or just somebody concerned with their health because the wearables are allowing you to do that. But yeah, I mean, just how cool would it be to, you know, you have your iPhone in front of you or something like that mm-hmm. or um, some sort of thing it, on your watch. Obviously, it would be easier if you were running and it just tells you levels of everything, yeah. like what's going on during the run. I mean, you literally don't have to guess about anything. It'll it'll tell you when to fuel, you know, how many carbs you need at this time It'll point. be a projection <laughs> screen in front of you. Yeah, because you'll be wearing looking. your <laughs> Apple Vision Pro, so you'll <laughs> yeah. be able to see like all your <laughs> all your health metrics in so front of you. Blood glucose going down from... Take 12 grams of carbohydrate now. Now, take, <laughs> yeah. Take 10 yeah. grams of ketones I now. Know. <laughs> we joke, but man, it's, I mean, it's coming eventually. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's taken a lot of the guesswork out, which, uh-huh. I mean, I've been running long enough where sometimes I wonder, like, maybe it would be better without that. But then it's also, like, what are you going to do about it? You're yeah. Just- <laughs> and, yeah, in a way, it's it's like the over, over-optimization paralysis by analysis type of thing where, mm-hmm. like, yeah, when, when I was, you know, coming up and just starting running and I had just probably even barely had a GPS watch. It was yeah. just like a time watch. I mean, running was certainly like more fun. I mean, it's it's fun now because I have all the data, my you know cadence rate, my stride rate, it's like stride length, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But so it's fun to see, but you can definitely get kind of worn down in it. And mm-hmm. for something like a race, I can imagine, I mean, you know, when I do a race, I wear my watch. I rarely ever look at it if, you know, if I'm doing, um, and I don't put my heart rate monitor on. I'm not looking at my heart rate during the race. But I imagine that there are people out there who certainly do that. They're like looking at their heart rate mm-hmm. during the race, trying to, you know, determine what the intensity they're at. I think all of that contributes to cognitive load during a race mm-hmm. and like adding more variables like glucose or <laughs> ketones or lactate or whatever would only just contribute more to that. So it could be a good thing, but you want like your coach who is on the sidelines to be, you know, have like a little wire in your ear or something right. telling you about that versus you thinking about that during the race. Mm-hmm. Because I think that more data isn't, isn't always better. And sometimes you just need to like disconnect and just go out there and run mm-hmm. or just go out there and, and race. Um, yeah. I think that's certainly important. <laughs> it's a great point. I had a coaching client who was targeting the 24 hour and she had done a few of them. So was looking to kind of take another step forward and just got really dialed with her crew. 
where she had like a spreadsheet and all the data put in mm -hmm. there. And we had a conversation kind of before her race and you know, she's getting nervous like everyone does before a race. I was like, you know what you, you really need to do is you need to stop worrying about the spreadsheet and what's mm -hmm. on it and just commit to one thing and that's do what your crew tells you to do. Don't worry about whether you've done 17 ounces of mm -hmm. this or one packet of that. Just don't ignore your crew and make sure the crew has a set of non-negotiables where they're like, this is what you need to have. You can't say no to this. These are options. So if you say mm -hmm. yes, we'll give it to you. If you say no, we're not gonna push it on you or anything like that. So then she goes into that event. All she has to do is run and do what she's told. So those are the two things she needs to do mm -hmm. is run the right pace. So don't go too fast. Right. <laughs> it's 24 hours. So yeah. don't go too fast too early. <laughs> and then take what your crew gives you and just know that that's the plan that you drew out and that we know is going to work. So she ended up going way further than she had prior. Wow. And it was, I think a lot of it had to do with that. She, like you said, you removed a huge, it took like a, a cognitively like, detailed thing and remove that from her mental energy so she could just kind of focus yeah you don't want to be thinking about anything other than just like putting one foot in front of the mm -hmm. other so like having a team for sure is like a, definitely a benefit especially over something like 24 hours you know if it's like a half marathon or something you yeah. know you can be thinking about stuff and it might right. not contribute that much to it but over 24 hours where you're i'm assuming like not sleeping or anything like that it's just mm -hmm. like you're you know you have to preserve literally every last calorie and so you don't want your brain doing yeah doing any more than it has to <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of half marathons, you're coming off of a half marathon PB not too long ago at Houston. Yeah. Houston ran 109.34. So that was almost like a minute PR. Super happy about it. Um, had to take some time off after dealing with like an injury, but we'll be running up like in the next week or so. But yeah, I was stoked about that. Um, it had been, you know, I think my, the PR that I had set before then was, it was in 110 and that was from like seven or so years ago. So I was mm -hmm. obviously you know, much younger. I was like 23. I'm 30 now. So I'm not, you know, older or anything like that, but you know, seven years ago. And it's funny cause I was, when I was preparing like for this half marathon and even others that I've run, you kind of like look back in your training logs and I went to Strava and just typed in the name of the marathon where I, the half marathon where I ran that PR. And I'm like, man, 522 pace for like 13 miles. I'm like, am I ever going to run that again? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's just crazy how, you know, you can, you can look back on past performances and they seem like very daunting, but I mean, the training up until then had been like really good. And I just think that with age and kind of, I wasn't as smart of a runner then. I mean, mm -hmm. at 23, it was kind of just like run as much as I can yeah. and see how fast I can run. And now I'm like, you know, I think that I can run faster than I did, you know, whether it was in college or like those few years post collegiately, just because I'm like, you're much smarter about training, smarter about nutrition, smarter about racing. Like, you know, yes, a little bit older, but like, I don't know. I think that being, being more knowledgeable about training has like led to a lot of improvements. Um, and not only about how to train harder, but like sometimes about how to train less hard, doing the right to, stuff at the right, doing time. The right stuff yeah. at the right time, allowing yourself to recover. Um, but I think one of the things honestly that has contributed a lot to fitness and you know, that's not running related has just been like it learning to embrace the bike. Yeah, um, yeah. I follow like a lot of guys on, on Twitter too, who will, or X, I guess what we're calling it now. Um, who just talk a lot about, you know, cross training and the importance of like cycling for runners. And even so in the past, like five or so years, man, I've been just doing probably more volume on the bike than I have running. Sometimes it's like a half and half split. So mm -hmm. say like a total training week might be 14, 15 hours. It's typically evenly split, like seven and a half on the bike, seven and a half running or something like mm -hmm. that. But that's allowed, I think, major improvements in fitness because, you know, what's different from the bike running is the, the impact. And mm -hmm. impact is actually something that I've had to 
learned to kind of moderate over the years because I've dealt with some some bone stress injuries. Um, and so, you know, I'm not, you know, for the time being, not able to run necessarily like, you know, 70, 80, 90 mile weeks. So just replace that with non-impact bike workouts. But mm -hmm. one of the neat things about it and that I've kind of integrated in is a little bit higher intensity on the bike. You know, mm -hmm. you can't go out and run your quote unquote threshold pace every day or you're gonna get injured. Yeah. But when you're on the bike, you can do something a little closer to kind of that threshold. You obviously don't wanna do it every day, but you can kind of go much harder um, on the bike. I don't necessarily have to stay in zone two on the bike every day. I can do one, two interval slash threshold sessions on the bike like a week. Mm -hmm. So keep that kind of aerobic fitness up and use the running to kind of build, you know, obviously that running specific strength and do running specific intervals. But um, I think that's definitely contributed a bit to kind of that, at least that half marathon PR, um, a lot of other things, obviously the, the running training was good, but embracing cross training. Um, mm -hmm. I know with like Parker Valby cross training yeah. become like the popular thing. Everybody's, that, yeah. everybody's saying, Oh, you don't, you only have to run three days a week. The NCAA <laughs> champ. But I'm like, one of the things that I don't think people realize is like how much cross training that she's like yeah. actually doing. I'm like, like a I mean, hours a day, a couple yeah. hours a day, probably on whatever modality that she's using for it. But mm -hmm. it's like, it, it's not just a cross train. Like, Oh, let's, let's hop on the bike and ride around campus. It's like you're, you know, three, four, four hours a day right. cross training, probably four times as much as you would if you were running. So mm -hmm. like if you're going to cross train, yeah, it can, it can help improve your running fitness. Um, but, uh, yeah, you gotta kind of do a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. She's definitely an extreme on the cross training side of things, but clearly there's a path forward for mm -hmm. it. Um, or she's just way better than she actually is and it's like she's gonna blow us all out right. of the water with what she <laughs> be the best runner ever at some mm -hmm. point in her life but it is fun to I, I i never got around to looking to see like what the reasoning for that was did she have an injury that caused i think that, it or? was just kind of uh and i granted i don't know this is kind of just like through the pipeline sure. type of stuff but i think it was like injury related stuff like you mm -hmm. know if she ran more than like what she was doing maybe that was like making her more prone to injury so i think the cross mm -hmm. training well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I don't think the cross training and what people made it seem like was the cross training was like a, a deliberate scheme. Like mm -hmm. we were like, Oh, we're only going to run three days a week and we're going to cross train four. I think the cross training was kind of born out of necessity in and a then way. It became and program. so she's good. Maybe not because, well, she's good because of the cross training, but sort of like in spite of the fact that she cross trains yeah. a lot, like it's just, she would prefer to run probably seven days a week, like all runners would, yeah. <laughs> but she's cross training a lot and she's incredibly talented. So, you know, mm -hmm. she ends up being fast like she is. Yeah. I remember the first time I had heard about that particular scenario was at the NCAA championships because it was here in Austin mm -hmm. and obviously she won the 10 K at that. And it was, that's when I first heard like, Oh, she only runs like 15, 20 miles a week. <laughs> and then they, they said that they said she had only been training 15 to 20 miles per week going in. So mm -hmm. I'm like, I hadn't been following that closely through the season. So I'm like, oh, well, she's definitely not at peak form. Right. And then she goes and blows everyone away. And it's like, okay, apparently that worked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because like it can almost be, or at least with uh, going back to like the, the race in Houston or whatever, the week before that. So I was injured like during the race at Houston, but I had like decided to do it anyway because I'm like, I'm not going to, mm -hmm. I'm not going to make it worse. And I'm, I'm in like kick-ass shape. So I'm just going to yeah. go and, and run this race. But the week beforehand, I was like really trying not to injure myself even more. So I was doing a little bit less on the bike, but still biking and like very little running, but it was almost like a forced taper in a way. So yeah. it was like, I went into that race, like super fresh, I think. So it was kind of, you know, the injury made, uh, forced the taper a little bit. But so I wonder like, with, you know, whether it's Parker Valby or, or other runners who are doing a lot of cross training, it's like you, you might save your legs a little bit. Like when you're doing the running, 
get quality work in, like do some quality sessions and, you know, then save your legs. Don't do your slower zone two or just like your base aerobic sessions running, like switch it to cross training and like mm-hmm. see how it works. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If we'll see more. I don't know if we'll see more athletes kind of embracing that or mm-hmm. again, most runners just want to run myself included. Like I don't want to spend right. two hours on the bike a day. I've learned <laughs> to kind of enjoy it, but I would rather be outside running. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. When I was injured this summer, I could do a lot, but not run. Um, I had this sacral mm-hmm. stress fracture. So it was like four weeks of like no impact based stuff, but I could like push and pull a sled. I could bike. I could even do some resistance mm-hmm. training if I wanted to after like the second week. And in the in the thick of it, I was like, I'm going to keep a lot of this stuff around. Mm. But then once I got healthy, it's like I started phasing <laughs> that stuff out and I've slowly moved to next yeah. to nothing. I kept a lot of the strength work around. That's I've probably been more consistent and deliberate with strength work the last almost year now than I ever have. And I think that's just the reality of maybe being 38. Mm. <laughs> it's like it's no it's no longer something where it's like it's kind of fun to go into strength, do strength work every once in a while. But now it's like, yeah, you better do it every day. Not optional. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. When you do your strength training, so are you doing it every day or are you doing like a couple a couple more like heavier sessions per week? So I'm curious how you do it because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you're a bit like me um, and maybe most runners who like I don't necessarily like to strength train. I don't necessarily like like to lift weights. If you catch me on the right day in the right mood, like, right. I yeah. might be uh, I might be like pumped to go to the gym, but generally I'm just like, ah, oh, this is kind of it's kind of like boring. Means I mean, it's not yeah. it's not as like uh, mentally like stimulating as like mm. running is. So I just don't like to do it. It's almost kind of like the uh, just like a chore to mm-hmm. do. Um, so I've I've tried to find ways recently to like to integrate strength training, but doing it more frequently seems mm-hmm. to be better for me. So like. What I've been doing lately is three days a week, I'll do like a probably 20-ish, maybe 30, maybe minute max circuit of, I'll just pick like three to four exercises, do them at the house. I have some kettlebells. I have some like Mm -hmm. general other stuff and I'll kind of do that. That to me seems to be a better way to do it. I could do some more like heavy stuff and actually go to the gym and do some like heavy lifts. I think that would be beneficial. But um, in terms of just like integrating it, frequency for me has been better versus just saying, Oh, I'm going to go to the gym now for an hour, an hour and a half and like do these long drawn out sessions. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious how you like strength. Uh, yeah. How you program your strength. Yeah. I should clarify on that. Cause it's not, it's every day, but it's not like what you would imagine when mm-hmm. you think strength training every day. So the way I look at it is I've got like daily drills or daily exercise. And those are things I'm going to, I'm going to aim for every day. I'll miss a day every once in a while, but I'm usually pretty consistent. And that's going to be just a series of, uh, kind of just like kind of, mechanical motions more Mm. or less where I'm kind of just I'm not really doing any weight bearing for the most part with it but I'm gonna go through I'm doing like leg swings forward squats um Bulgarian split squats unweighted some box steps and maybe just like a set Mm. and I'm just gonna run through like that circuit it's probably like maybe 10-15 minutes tops uh and then I'm gonna that's so that's gonna be like baseline like just drills essentially And then from there, I'll do like one lower body session that is like muscular endurance based. Mm -hmm. So like I'll do uh, like alternate leg jump squats, jump squats, um, forward lunges. Um, What's the other one that I have in there? Uh, I didn't even have my program in front of me. I'll do, uh, did I say box steps? I think. Yeah, box steps is the other one. So that's like the four, like a four-piece muscular endurance routine that I'll do. So it'll be like one more specific lower body day that I'll do, and then I'll do a more weighted one for the second lower body session for the week, and that'll be like hex bar deadlifts. 
I'll do like weighted Bulgarian split squats, um, some heavier kettlebell swing type stuff. Um, depending on kind of how I'm, where I am in the training cycle, like I might do some like more weighted versions of those muscular endurance stuff where I'm trying to do more like one leg at a time mm -hmm. since running is a single leg at a time. I, I try to transition to that for the most part versus doing the dual leg stuff. So like if I get on like a leg press or something like that, I'll do single leg mm -hmm. leg press versus dual leg leg press. Um, and then I'll like any other strength work I do is like non lower body specific. So like I'll do a day where I'm doing core for kind of a focus. And then I'll usually like, I'm the least consistent with this, but it's like upper body stuff uh, maybe yeah. once per week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like when I, and that would be like those two lower body, the drills and like one or two core upper body sessions per week, that would be like the most diligent I get. There'll yeah. be phases of the year where I'll maybe scale back to a single lower body session per week. Um, when I'm kind of in the thick of things and it's like, eventually you got to get around to like positioning in a way that they don't interfere with your running workouts. Right. And I always find like when I'm really consistent with it, I'm usually a little more safe because you normalize the routine to a degree. Whereas mm -hmm. if you like take an off season and you come back, it's all of a sudden like one set or a third of the workout essentially is enough to make you sore the next day. Right. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this podcast sponsors include S Fuels. S Fuels is offering a free 30 serving pack of their train product, but there are only 50 available, so hurry up. Head over to sfuelsgolonger.com, add the train product to your cart, enter promo code HPO train to get it for free and free shipping. Element Electrolytes, they have a free sample pack offer for you. John G Apparel has a 10% offer for you. And Delta G Ketones has a 20% off and free consultation offer for you. Links and details can be found in the show notes and the episode landing page. You can also check out a full description of how I use all of these products in my own training and racing at the end of this podcast episode. But no, I like the, I like the kind of like something small every day approach because mm -hmm. it's like you're getting, you feel good about it. It like, cause you're getting like a stimulus every yeah. single day versus mm -hmm. just like, oh, I do, I did, you know, two days per week this week for like an hour. But then on the other days I did nothing versus like, oh, today you know, I did a lower body set and yes, yesterday I did like an upper body set and you only have to spend 10, 15, 20 minutes on it. I think that's like an interesting approach that I think a lot of runners, um, could probably kind of take up. Um, I, I certainly like that approach better too. And I like doing something. I'll typically try to do something every day, even if it's literally just doing some pull-ups and push-ups yeah. and mm -hmm. whatnot, like with stuff I have around the house, just to, just cause you're like, you're technically, you know, getting stronger, you're improving on something like right. every day. Um, somebody, I don't know who, like where the phrase originated, but like, they'll call it like greasing the groove. Yeah. So like you said, doing, doing Pavlov, just motions. Think, yeah. yeah. Even if it's not, even if it's not super heavy weights, you know, mm -hmm. I'll have like a 25 pound kettlebell and maybe do just a couple sets of RDLs throughout the day, or it's like, just as you like, you move around the house. So mm -hmm. one of the perks of like working from home, you know, I just have like kettlebells yeah, sitting next yeah. to my desk. So, uh, it's been 30 minutes. I'm yeah. going to get up and do like a set of kettlebell swings or something. So that can keep you, keep you active and like keep you, uh, doing some strength training. And it's also a little bit like mentally stimulating too. It so it's all yeah. just been like, a, it's kind of been like a game. Cause like you said, you, unless you are, you know, you are a, a full-time professional athlete, but unless you are that, or, you know, unless you are one, like you only have a limited amount of time. It's like, yeah, right. training and running is going to come first, kind of your main thing. But then it's like, you try to fit the strength training in and, you know, if you don't have time to go to the gym, then how can you, how can you integrate strength training? Cause it certainly is important and I can't neglect it as I, I have neglected it in the past. And like you said, it, once you get hit a certain age, you no longer can start to neglect it. It becomes a need to do versus a yeah. optional 
Yeah. <laughs> when, when you first moved to Austin, you had like a hamstring issue that you fi- that finally got resolved, right? Yeah. The hamstring issue was so interesting. So I, I had tore my hamstring probably three or so years ago and it wasn't even, it was run. It wasn't even run. I mean, I heard it running, but it wasn't even like running where I tore it. I tweaked it. And then I was just like being an idiot in the gym one day and like stretching really bad. Yeah. And I just heard like a snap and I just knew like, Oh, something's wrong. <laughs> so that was is huge hamstring injury, like kind of right, uh, like proximal hamstring. Um, yeah. I had that and, and I went to rehab for that and stuff like that. And it, and it did get better and obviously allowed me to run again. But like for probably two years, I had just experienced like, not like a debilitating pain, but going on runs, you'd feel it sitting down is when I would feel it the most, like mm-hmm. almost like a, what people will describe as like proximal hamstring tendinopathy. So yeah. like you have an injury and it never goes away. Like if I were sitting like this for an hour or so, you're just like, oh, you feel this pain, like almost in like your butt, yeah. um, just the pain mm-hmm. in your butt. So I had just been dealing with that for a long time. The pain didn't, didn't really go away. I was doing like a ton of hamstring rehab, hamstring strengthening type of stuff. And it just didn't go away. So we moved to Austin. I went to a pra- uh, place here called run lab. They have oh, several, yeah. several different locations here. Cause I wanted to see like a PT and just like see what was up. Um, they did, you know, obviously like a very comprehensive, like running assessment gait analysis, which I would recommend, like whether it's run lab or not, everybody should do just to see like where your inconsistencies are, where your imbalances are and like mm-hmm. things to work on. But I went there, um, got a gait analysis and they identified some things, nothing necessarily though, that would have been like contributing to the hamstring, um, mm-hmm. injury. So, you know, I went there for a couple months, did some PT drills, but it was less about PT and they really reworked like my form kind of from the ground up. I mean, focusing on knee drive, focusing on kind of leaning forward a little bit more, focusing mm-hmm. on increasing my cadence. And after working with them for probably one or two months or so, like the hamstring pain just like went away. And really? I, so I wasn't doing any hamstring rehab. So like mm-hmm. my mindset had shifted towards, you know, for two years I have been like just targeting this hamstring, like <laughs> get stronger, get stronger, like yeah. to try to, reduce this like hamstring pain I've been having, but literally reworking my running form, it pretty much eliminated like all of that pain. And so I was just like, damn, like I was doing (laughs) the wrong things like this whole time where I could have just focused on my running form. So, you know, shout out to run lab for kind of helping me. Um, I know a lot of other people, um, I know a few other people who have actually gone there with some, with some positive results, but yeah. And, and I think in general, not only like has the hamstring thing kind of improved, but just like I credit that just reworking my running form to just getting better at running overall. I think in terms of like my efficiency and whatnot, like running is just like easier. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was just a totally interesting experiment. And, you know, I know, I don't know about you, but like I had never really worked on my running form as a runner. I mean, Mm -hmm. even like in high school and college, like we would have drills and we would, we would do certain things, but I never really did a comprehensive, like let's fix or let's change your running form. Yeah. It's kind of one of those, if it's not broke, don't fix the right. thing. I mean, you don't you don't want to change anybody's running form too much unless right. they're like a really really bad runner. Mm-hmm. They're really inefficient, or you identify something that's like, oh, you keep getting injured because you like run like this. We need to yeah. change that. I mean, mm-hmm. I had a pretty decent running form, um, as or I, so I thought, but like just like these small tweaks and just practicing these different cues every week, mm-hmm. eventually patterns just kind of get ingrained in your mind and like. Like I'm a totally different runner in the way I run now, and I think it's you know all for the better. So that was it was a t- totally interesting experience yeah. to to kind of cure an injury 
not through strengthening, but just through right. like <laughs> changing the way that, way that I run. Yeah, you change your form to the degree where now whatever load was getting placed on that mm -hmm. hamstring gets reduced. So exactly. It's, yeah, it's progress yeah. by elimination mm -hmm. more than it is by adding. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, running's a goofy sport because it's like one of those <laughs> things where we just assume we all know how to do it. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the understanding a lot of times. And if you're doing other sports too, like non-running, if it's not like cross-country or track, you're going to still do a lot of running, mm -hmm. like if you're soccer, if you're football or any of these basketball, any of these other sports, but they're not going to teach you running form for that. They're going to teach you the drills for the sport. They're going to teach you technique for the sport. But like, if you just go out for a run after that, you might just have a really, really wild form and, yeah. and never know it. <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot of people start running is like probably one of the most participated in sports, mm -hmm. like worldwide, just because it's like people play sports, you know, up until their twenties and then you graduate mm -hmm. college and it's like, well, unless you're doing rec sports, like a lot of people just run, but mm -hmm. nobody's ever been taught to run. Yeah, you yeah, just, yeah. you just run, you start running, you walk faster and then you start moving your arms yeah. and like you run, but nobody like learns how to run. So it's like, we need a, maybe the, I don't know. We need like a nationwide like program to right. teach Let's people do some how to running run. form yeah. technique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I wanted to talk to you about, um, supplements too in general, cause I know you go deep into the supplements, both like where their value or lack of value is. And I'm sure like you get marketing with anything and it's always going to be, I would say like an overshoot in the value for the most part. So, um, yeah, like so you're with I guess the let's start here. You moved to Austin because you started working for Examine 2.0, right? Yeah, and we actually didn't move there because Examine though. So Examine is actually a remote based company. So mm -hmm. um we moved to Austin actually for my wife's job. So we're here and I'm That's able right. to work just for Examine. They they coincided that we moved to Austin around the same time I started working for Examine. Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha, yeah. gotcha. And the interesting thing about Examine is uh it's essentially like, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, it's like a subscription service where you sign up and then you have access to this database and you and other researchers are essentially going through all of the evidence that uh, talks about different supplements. And then um, I've got the, the lifetime membership, so <laughs> like awesome. I go on there from time to time <laughs> when it's like, when I see something like, you, you know, it's like anything you see, like this is the next great thing you go there and you type it in, let's find out exactly what the research says, because oftentimes the marketing is going to highlight the positive research, maybe not so mm -hmm. much the negative research and get an idea of like, what am I looking at from a value add with this versus not having it at all or, or, or even just like the dosage too. Cause it's like, I could go and say like, okay, caffeine is probably one of the most proven performance enhancing substances you can get probably scores about as high as anything. Mm -hmm. But like if I go and buy a product and they say like, you're going to get this much improvement from the caffeine, I look on the back of it and it's like, oh, there's 10 grams of caffeine or milligrams of caffeine in here. And then you look at the research and it's like three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weights, the kind of the performance loading right. zone. You get a lot of like, I think um, just a lot, a lot of gray area in the, in the marketing and in the kind of the public conversation around some of this stuff. So like having a tool where you can essentially plug it in and figure out like, have I done the things to make this applicable at all? Or maybe I don't even need to bother with that at any point is kind of an interesting concept. So, and obviously like you guys don't take any funding because you're subscription based mm -hmm. and that's how you get, get by without having any sort of um, industry funding, which would obviously make it a little more hard to trust you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of one of, one of the main things that we pride ourselves on exam at examine is like having no, no industry ties or anything like that. And, and that's not to say that we're, you know, against anybody who does, but as a 
company who's trying to provide the most unbiased evidence for like what works and what doesn't. It's just kind of our duty, I guess it would say to like, to not have any ties or whatever. And if you went on the site too, you would notice like, we don't talk about specific brands of supplements. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're not going on there. You're not going to find anything on say like athletic greens, or I know you're a fan of, um, a certain brand of like the magnesium supplements, but we're not going to talk about mm. those supplements specifically, but just magnesium in general. In general, right? So, and what's kind of unique to uh, to about our site, and I would mention that like we focus on supplements and examine came out of kind of examining supplements and saying which ones work, but with the 2.0 launch of Examine 2.0 and kind of the update on the site, like we now cover different diets. So we'll, you can go on there. We'll have pages for intermittent fasting. We'll have mm -hmm. pages for um, the Mediterranean diet, the ketogenic diet, any diet you can kind of think of, DASH diet, things like that. Um, certain, you know, exercise interventions. We have like a whole page on sauna. So kind of like if you're interested in more than supplements, like we kind of take the same approach to interventions as we do supplements with saying like with what works. But um, yeah, with the supplements, what's been cool kind of as a researcher, but also just as like a user of the site as well is not only can you go to say, like you mentioned caffeine, go to the caffeine page and say, oh, does caffeine work? It's kind of sorted by outcome. So mm -hmm. if you're interested, you know, we can't, it's interesting to say like, oh, does caffeine work? Well, what does it work for? Right, I mean, that's, yeah. it's uh, hard to say like, well, yes, caffeine works, but does it work for, you know, uh, increasing VO2 max or are you interested mm -hmm. in sleep? Well, obviously it doesn't work for sleep, right, yeah. but it <laughs> might work for like improving VO2 max or maximal strength or power output or something mm -hmm. like that. So you can kind of go through the site and click on, you know, what outcome you're interested in. If you're interested in a specific condition, like hypertension, we kind of have all these interactions like on the site. So it's kind of like this web of, um, sorted by conditions, different diseases, different like health goals, supplements, and then the different outcomes. Um, so that's kind of just a, you know, a comprehensive database where you can kind of go and find information on any of those. But um, it's been interesting as a researcher, you know, when I started working there um, to one of my main roles there is to update certain pages about supplements. So I'm mm -hmm. basically just like assigned like a supplement. So for instance, I might recently I was working on a page for resveratrol, which is, you know, that molecule found in red wine that yeah. David Sinclair and everyone else has claimed will like promote longevity and reverse right. aging and, and things like that. So I'm doing this whole update on like the resveratrol page and like what we do is focus on meta-analyses, which are studies where you, it's a quote unquote, a study of studies. So mm. you'll read a paper and they'll compile evidence from any randomized controlled trial on resveratrol. They'll lump together all the results and basically give an outcome saying, does say resveratrol work for high blood pressure? So that might be evidence from say 20 to 25, 30 studies or something like that. So when we're updating our database and when I'm doing that, I'm only using meta-analyses, which we consider and most consider to be kind of the gold standard for evidence if you're evaluating not just supplements, but anything. Mm -hmm. um, so a meta-analysis um, is kind of like the gold standard when you think of like, if you're looking at something, if whether something works or it doesn't. Um, but we, maybe in a bit though, I'll talk about why maybe just like a single study might be more important than a meta-analysis. but. Doing research on that, you know, you hear about resveratrol, you hear it like promoted in the media, you hear that it has like all these amazing effects. And then I do like a literature search and I start updating the page and I'm like, oh, it's it's kind of underwhelming. Like yeah. there's not really a, bunch a of lot. Rat studies. <laughs> exactly. A lot of studies in mice, a lot of studies in kind of like animal models, which aren't useless. You know, I think right. that we sometimes discredit it. it's like, oh well that study was in mice. Well, most studies at least began start in way, an animal yeah. model. You know, you have like a preclinical model. Does it work? Okay, well now we 
translate that to a clinical trial in humans. But even then, I mean, resveratrol is a pretty old molecule in terms of like it's been studied for a long time and there are human studies and it's just like it's it's kind of underwhelming in terms of the effects. And that's that's been one of my takeaways from supplements just in general um, when reading like research and since working at Examine and just like reading studies on my own to write about. It's like there's there's not a lot to support most of the stuff that's out there, but there are like a lot of just like key kind of like keystone supplements that like work. And then everything mm -hmm. else is kind of coming from these like fringe, real small like trials that somebody saw and then they like hype up a supplement to be like huge. So mm. another example would be like um, Tonkat Ali was like oh, yeah. popular. Everybody was talking about it like as this testosterone booster. And, and I did an entire like page update on Tonkat Ali. And I mean, there are, I did, you know, very comprehensive research and there's like, there's a total of seven studies okay. ever published on this supplement. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhat effective at increasing testosterone. There are a few yes rat studies, but there are some human studies that, yeah, they show that it can increase testosterone, but like seven studies is really not a lot, you know, right. in total, in the total grand scheme of things. So just doing that has kind of opened my eyes up to like, to be a bit, bit more skeptical. Like you said, when you, when you see claims about something, what it works. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing I think would be that like, like you said, most people don't just take say like straight up magnesium, right? right. They don't just take one, one ingredient or whatever. It's usually mm -hmm. like a supplement that contains some type of herbal blend with like a bunch of these different ingredients. And so, yeah, something you might have this herbal blend that contains ashwagandha and like ginseng and, and mm -hmm. caffeine or something like that. Well, independently, those ingredients or those herbs or whatever have probably shown benefits in some studies. So maybe ashwagandha like boosts cognitive performance or ginseng, mm -hmm. you know, boosted, and I don't know, sexual fertility or something yeah. like that. But when, you know, what happens when you combine them? Like you said, what was the dose that was used and was it in mice and does that dose scale up to, to humans? And mm -hmm. so just because a supplement contains something, you know, doesn't mean that that's actually going to have that effect because it could yeah. be a very very trace amount you know you kind of see that with like energy drinks where they'll have a proprietary blend of something <laughs> but it's like that there might be just like a minuscule amount there might be a drop of yeah. you know something in that energy drink so um and unfortunately the supplement industry is very very like unregulated and so you can kind of you can kind of say whatever you want um mm -hmm. it doesn't really even need to be backed up by a clinical trial on your supplement you can make a claim say studies have shown that this supplement can boost this because it contains this ingredient. So mm -hmm. you basically extrapolate the study was done in this ingredient. It showed this benefit and therefore our supplement should benefit that. But in reality, that's, that's, that's not like how it works, but reading all the research has like opened my eyes to, well, that's how most of the kind of supplements like operate. So unless you're just taking like a single thing, like you are just using say magnesium or just vitamin D, you might be taking something that has kind of uh, little evidence like to support it. And mm -hmm. most, most of those supplements that you like see on the shelf um, or see like marketed on like a podcast or something aren't probably haven't necessarily been, been like actually tested. Right. Of course some have, but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you get one like an Athletic Greens where it's like a list of like 70 plus stuff. <laughs> right. So how do you even begin to yeah, know like what right. each individual thing is doing? Mm -hmm. It seems to me that like with some of the stuff like Athletic Greens, it's almost like there's so much information out there about like supplements and optimization where people just say, screw it, give me the one with everything. Right. <laughs> and I'm just gonna try to like throw a blanket over it and hope that that catches any deficiency, which is actually an interesting topic. Is there, my, my thought is like, 
step one is like construct a diet that is going to have the RDA or somewhere mm. near the RDA of the things you're and, and do your best there. And if you have a situation where like whatever is like kind of a, a good diet for you where like I can repeat this day in and day out and be happy with it. If there's gaps in that and you can't find replacements that are going to keep that diet to be successful, then maybe look at a supplement to try to fortify that. Is that like good practice or should people just, is there a value of just throwing a multivitamin <laughs> at it and just saying like, here we go, I'm going to be safe now? Yeah. I think for like, for something like a multivitamin, I mean, I think for most people, the reason why you probably don't supplement with more things is just because you don't want to like spend a ton of money on it. Right. I mean, if I had a thousand dollars a month to spend on supplements, I would buy as many as I could with that amount. Sure. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, we have, it's discretionary income for most people. I mean, for some supplements are, you know, essential and like the, people will almost see that as part of their, like the income that they have to spend. It's like, you're buying groceries while well, I have to buy my supplements. But right. I <laughs> think that for something like a multivitamin, it's pretty cheap and at the least, you know, if you're getting more than the recommended amount of something, you're just going to like pee it out. Yeah. So that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, the problem is, and you know, I, I hate to like drop a name and like talk about something like with athletic greens, but it's a, it's a perfect example where their whole kind of marketing thing is it's nutritional insurance. So mm -hmm. that's fine. But like, do you want to take something that's insurance if you know you're not like, you know, necessarily deficient right. in it? So I mean, I think it, it can be good and it's not necessarily, I don't think there's harm in, in doing that. Um, but like you said, I think doing a well-balanced diet for one, they're called supplements for a reason. They're right. meant to yeah. supplement <laughs> in the, the diet. They're not meant to, you know, I don't have to eat veggies now that I'm having my you right. know, greens shake every day. You should probably still eat vegetables for the fiber and things like that. But I think identifying, like you said, gaps in your diet or, or areas where you think you might want more of something. So like, mm -hmm. Creatine, I think, is a good example where we get creatine from the diet. So probably two to three grams per day, maybe if you're eating, you know, some meat and like fish like every day, but not in like huge quantities. Mm -hmm. If you're eating like a carnivore diet or something, I mean, you're probably getting like five to 10 grams of right. creatine per day. You probably don't need to supplement. But like it's one of those things where I think providing a little bit more can probably have a benefit. Um, it's not like a minimal essential like nutrient. So mm -hmm. I think something like that. Um, but that, I think creatine kind of falls in the line of a performance enhancing supplement versus like a daily, um, you know, like a multivitamin or something mm -hmm. like that. But so I think in general, I mean, aside from like a daily multivitamin, I think for, with most other things, people should think about whether they need it or not and whether it can, you know, you could put something in your diet to replace that versus buying a supplement because yeah. diet's probably going to be a bit more bioavailable. It's going to be a bit more cheaper and most people would probably rather eat food than like take a supplement. Um, yeah. So I think just, yeah, identifying, you know, can I get this from food? If I can't, maybe I should consider supplementing it. But then also think about like whether you're deficient in it and in, if increasing your intake of something is actually going to, to like provide a benefit or does a deficiency in that nutrient provide kind of like a detriment. So I think it's, it's important to think about versus just, um, I think people have like this, uh, this almost like fear of missing out kind of right, around yeah. supplements. I mean, myself included, I mean, you know, you see all these like supplements going around and like all these podcasts talking about, Oh, this new supplement does this. And I'm like, Oh, I want to try all these to see if, right. you know, it benefits my health and benefits my performance. But I think that that can lead to some urgency to like go out and do it without kind of making, doing like an analysis of 
-hmm. How does this fit into, you know, my life? And do I actually even need this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's fair to say, like, if someone is looking to potentially, let's say someone has the discretionary income to spend on some some supplements and they're like, well, I want to be smart about it, though. I'm not just going to go and buy every supplement Mm -hmm. that pops up. Is it fair to say if you get like a pretty comprehensive blood test that that's going to highlight maybe the spots you'd want to focus on more? I would think so. But I mean, with, you know, with blood tests, it's like it's interesting because you're you're getting a snapshot of just like one time during the day and like. Was it after you exercised or, you know, what did you do the day before? So Mm -hmm. I think that they can definitely be informative. And I think that most people should probably get regular blood tests Mm -hmm. um, to identify like a deficiency. But I mean, I think that's probably the best way for somebody to do it based just off of feeling or somebody saying that most people are vitamin D deficient. So you probably are too. Like you'll get a test to to see if that's actually true, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's probably some things where, like, just by the averages, you're more likely to, or higher risk of being mm-hmm. deficient at, and then if the blood test confirms that, then you can maybe trust it a little more. Yeah. So, like, vitamin D might be one of them. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, most people will say regarding supplements that, like, well, you don't need this because you can get it in plenty amounts in the diet. Mm-hmm. I think there's some, you know, some indication that, like, people will talk about, like, the soils are depleted in nutrients sure. and things like that. So I definitely don't think that our food contains maybe as many nutrients or the types of nutrients that we, you know, presume it to contain. Mm -hmm. So I think for that reason, maybe it it could be good to like safeguard yourself again. So I don't want to say that like a diet can contain everything you need because, you know, it, it might not, you know, there might be less magnesium in like the spinach you're eating or Mm -hmm. something. And so I think you go online and just say like, oh, how much, you know, how much iron is in spinach? Well, that might not actually be the amount of iron in the spinach you're eating. Right. So you might yeah. need some extra. Um, so I think that's something important to consider as well. Yeah. it's uh, You can throw it in chronometer, but at the end of the day, you, you, mm-hmm. if it's not accurate, then right. you might get in false false hope with that too. Yeah. So interesting. Is there um, – if we look at just like the difference between something being like just all right, you need this in order to just function at a normal level versus like optimizing – um, I mean, that's kind of a bad word, I guess. Technically, optimizing <laughs> has kind of like you kind of have to define it. Like, so let's just say, like, by taking this, it's by taking this, it's going to move you from, say, just like you're getting your basic needs met to it's going to actually improve whatever you're focused on, whether that be like mental clarity or focus or athletic performance, mm-hmm. which you'd probably have to define to the specific you know, intensity or skill set as well. Are are there things that like stand out to you as like, oh, this is something that I think is probably passes the test better than most does? Yeah, I think that there are probably certain and I think like, you know, I similarly like dislike the word optimize, but I use it all the time. I mean, and I think it's hard not to nowadays. Yeah, it's hard not to because like what else are you going to use? And I mean, I've been trying to like think about a definition of it lately because I use it so much and and it's like a. It, it, it indicates that like, well, we want to move beyond just like general health. We don't just mm-hmm. want to be healthy. Like you want to, I th- think it just means like, I want to perform my best in whatever task I'm doing. So you can optimize as an athlete, like train, you know, as hard as you can to reach your peak performance. You can optimize your work output or cognitive performance or whatever. So I don't know. It's, you know, it's a very hazy word to kind of use, but um, I like to use it all the time and say I'm trying to trying to optimize. But I think that's kind of where the realm of, supplements are moving too. like we want to optimize now we don't just want to like correct a deficiency because you know we're we're beyond Mm -hmm. that but yeah regarding certain supplements i think 
the big basics, at least for like athletic performance, you have like creatine, you have caffeine, you have sodium bicarbonate, you have beta alanine. And then things like beetroot juice is an interesting one. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to support it. And, um, but you know, some studies show that it doesn't benefit if you're like a fit athlete. And there was even some recent studies I've been posting that like, you know, it was only two studies, I think, but like even when, when women take it, they actually see a performance decrement. Hmm. I think that will need to be like replicated because there's not really a mechanism for me that like stands out as to why they wouldn't benefit or right. they would like perform worse with, yeah, yeah. with beetroot juice. But like, I think those things for maybe endurance athletes, but just like strength training in particular, I think those are things where, you know, those aren't necessarily nutrients you need in the diet. Those are things you take on top of it. Like you don't need to take creatine. You don't need to take caffeine. You don't need to take beetroot juice sodium bicarb beta alanine those are mm -hmm. things that you can take that can improve your performance above and beyond you know you can perform well without them but if mm -hmm. you take them you're probably going to perform better mm -hmm. um those have the strongest all of those things have the strongest evidence to support them they have a pretty extensive like research backing them up um so those definitely i would always recommend i think like with cognitive supplements, those are kind of interesting. Um, exogenous ketones lately, they're like, I feel like one of the most probably popular supplements. I know you've had like several guests on talking about yeah, exogenous ketones. I've been going deep in Yeah, those. deep in the <laughs> ketone research. So, and I am as well, probably less maybe even deep in the research than you, but like initially I was so, I was very bullish on them for like exercise performance because mm -hmm. I know there were some initial studies by Brianna Stubbs that showed they would enhance performance like at the end of a very long um, a very long like cycling bout you know during mm -hmm. a time trial and so unfortunately like since then I feel like most studies have like failed to kind of replicate the performance improvements but they've been doing a ton of research on ketones and I know there are kind of two main ketones out there and they're definitely different in terms of their effects but mm -hmm. like I'm more interested now in, you know, like we're talking about how could they optimize training, but not necessarily in the performance context. So mm -hmm. like ketones for recovery from exercise, ketones just like during training as a supplement to maybe augment recovery or prevent overtraining. There's some stuff to support that. Mm -hmm. um, for cognitive performance, I mean, I think there's maybe not great evidence. There's more maybe theory than evidence, but I think there are some studies coming out that show that you can improve cognitive performance with ketones, um, especially maybe in the context of say exercise. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like a fuel limited scenario. So if you're, you know, under demands and you need like carbohydrate or whatever to fuel your exercise, like the ketones can kind of rescue cognitive performance. Mm -hmm. There's some studies in ultra runners using them showing that they like enhance alertness and dopamine during ultra yeah. running, which is kind of cool. Um, and then just in general, like, I know a lot of, you know, the companies will market them as just like cognitive enhancers for, you know, just like working. So right. if you're writing or mm -hmm. if you're doing something, um, I personally have experienced like pretty, pretty neat benefits with them. Um, just using them for work, but yeah, so those would be one that probably stands out to me that I think needs more research, but I mean, I think like there's a ton of research going on right now, I think. So in the next few years, yeah. I think we'll see a lot of research being published on, on ketones. And, you know, I know I don't need to talk about this too much cause like listen to a few of your past yeah. episodes, you have extensive discussions uh, about yeah. them. So Brendan Egan was fun to talk to because yeah. he's kind of in the thick of it and he's also like unaffiliated with any of it. Oh, so, okay. um, I mean, he's obviously interested in it, yeah. which I guess you could say like if he's interested in it and he maybe has a bias, but like 
he's not like he's not working for one of the exogenous right. ketone brands so it's like i was interested to hear his kind of like breakdown of like where it's at and and where he thinks it maybe is going to go and stuff like that but you know one of the interesting things that i thought was when you do get into the performance side of stuff it's sort of this thing where like if it works it's a pretty big benefit mm-hmm. we're like two three percent efficiency which is like uh yeah, if you're if you're already got everything else finally tuned to two to three percent, we're getting into a territory of like you know the super shoes mm-hmm. and some of that stuff, yeah, like yeah. where like we see we actually see a performance like show up on the on the scorecard, but like there's this like spot you need to hit in order to actually get that. And the thing I was the most interested in is like because was what was that range? So mm-hmm. he was telling Brendan was saying like it's actually one to three millimoles of blood mm-hmm. ketone is kind of like that target range mm-hmm. you want to land in. I was surprised that it was that big. Because like if I take a if I take a, a ketone ester, uh, and I might not be the best example of this because I'm going to need less most mm. likely. But if uh, even if I have a reasonable amount of carbohydrate relative to what I normally would, if I take a single serving of like 27 grams of exager- of the ketone ester, like it's going to shoot me well past one millimole. Mm. So then it's like I'm going to land in that zone. And the only question after that is like, how often do I have to reproduce this to stay in that zone? And that's where obviously a monitor would be helpful, where it's like, oh, I'm down to I'm I'm down to 1.0. Time to take a little mm-hmm. more, and then bump you back up into like the twos, and then let it drift back down over time, and and kind of like target it like that. But but yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where if you don't have that data, you're kind of shooting in the dark a little bit with the performance stuff. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I think the recovery stuff is interesting. Um, the cognitive stuff is interesting. And like you said, I think it's all in its infancy. So who knows what will pan out. It might end up being something completely different than we think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, with those, like you mentioned, the context is just so important. And there are, there are unlimited scenarios. And I guess that kind of applies to like all supplements. But just mm-hmm. like when you know we're talking about ketones. But like the context, I think, is is so dependent with the ketones more so than other supplements, and like there are unlimited combinations. So like, rarely are in like the study design is going to determine your outcome. So like, most of the studies you're going to come to the lab fasted after overnight twelve hour fast. You're going to take the ketone. You're going to mm-hmm. do the performance, and the other condition you're going to be fasted. You're going to take carbs. You're going to take nothing. Hopefully carbs and not yeah. nothing because obviously ketone would be better. But and then you're going to do the exercise test. But like in reality, like that's not an athletic competition is not operating like that. You're right. going to, you're going to have breakfast. It's mm-hmm. like, what's your breakfast combination? Are you taking ketones with carbs? Are you taking it with protein? Are you taking it with fat? Like, so what are you eating it with? How does that impact the ketones? Like, what are you having during exercise? You know, the timing before the workout. Like, so it's so context dependent because you're going to, most athletes eat something. They're not just going to take a ketone with right. it. And I definitely mm-hmm. think that what you eat the ketone with will determine some of yeah. some of its effects. So um, very interesting there um, in terms of like just the design of studies. And that's why it's important, like going back to what I mentioned about like the meta analyses. So you could see one that says ketones don't benefit or they do benefit performance. Mm-hmm. But what might be more interesting to, for somebody is to take one of these ketone studies of which there are probably dozens now and find the one that applies specifically to you. Mm-hmm. So like, Rather than lump all the studies together, well, I want to find, oh, I have a three-hour bike ride this weekend, or I have a three-hour race this weekend. Mm-hmm. So let's find a ketone study where they in- administered a ketone maybe before the race. How did that affect that race performance? And, like, mm-hmm. who was it in? Because in that case, you don't really care 
whether on the whole ketones improve performance. You just want to know, do they improve performance in that scenario? So that's kind of where it's interesting to like read individual studies about the ketones and like find the one that applies to your specific scenario. Mm -hmm. And then it might have some like applicability and help you like be less confused about whether you should, uh, whether you should like take them or not. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, context specific matters because as of now, the research is not supportive of it with a higher intensity endurance event. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you might not want the exogenous ketone before your 10 K, but maybe you want it after from a recovery standpoint. So it's a lot of it is like, you know, when, when do I take it based on what I'm going to do in terms of if you're going to get anything at all or yeah, for sure. Step and, and I was, cause I was thinking about that a while ago. Cause you know, ketones, ketones in the blood would essentially kind of like shut down or shut off like carbohydrate mm -hmm. uh, oxidation or utilization a little bit. So like, it almost seems counterproductive if, if I was going to take this for 10 K yeah, where yeah. I want to be like maximizing my carbohydrate oxidation and yeah. glycolytic. So, you know, taking that, I was like, Oh, do I, what I want to do that? Cause it might like depress the amount of output that I might be able to like do during that race. So mm -hmm. it's not that like, Oh, ketones suck, but like, well, you don't want to do it before that, but before a 24 hour ultra or even like a marathon, mm -hmm. sure. They could be good in that context. So yeah, yeah it's important to think about for sure. Yeah, it, it, when when I saw that, I was like, well, this makes sense because when when I'm working with like my coaching clients, the low carb ones, if they're doing like a range of distances, it's like if they're doing an ultra marathon, like uh, you know, they're worried about their fat oxidation rates, hmm. and they're like, if I introduce carbohydrates, is that going to be a problem? Is it going to suppress them and stuff like that? I was like, well, before the race, probably don't want to have a lot of carbohydrate. Right. Um, maybe wait until you get into it. But if you're doing a 5K, it's mm. like, I'm not really concerned about your fat oxidation <laughs> no. rates. I think you might want to like actually suppress those a little right. bit and, and, and hit the gas for those. So it's like breakfast is going to be different between a 5K versus a 100 miles. So why wouldn't the exogenous ketone mm -hmm. protocol be different? But yeah, but it'll be interesting to see what Brendan and everyone else kind of gets to with it and see where, see where it leads, if anywhere. So yeah. I think the two different types though, too, are interesting. Cause there's like a, like all ketones aren't just ketones. Right. So we have like the, the two main ones pretty much now are the one that is our like beta hydroxybutyrate. And then mm -hmm. there's the butane diol. And mm -hmm. so they're definitely different. And I think at least the beta hydroxybutyrate one, I would more lean on that towards being kind of a physical performance enhancer. The butane diol one seems to have more of the cognitive maybe, or like mental effects. Mm -hmm. Cause that one's kind of a, I mean, it's essentially like an alcohol. So like yeah. if you drank enough of it, you'd be like a little, a little bit like tipsy yeah. or loopy or whatever. So uh -huh. it's, it's kind of interesting to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Too. Well, it's, it's funny too, because when you look at this, if you actually look at the products that make the difference, the different, the esters versus the dials, the dials have less ketones in it mm -hmm. for that reason, I would imagine, because you just can't do 30 grams of, uh, of, <laughs> of, a, of a dial without maybe having, yeah, the reverse effect or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's interesting stuff. Um, I feel like there was another study we were going to talk about that. Oh, the, up. uh, the periodized carbohydrate. Oh study. yeah. 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 I definitely wanted to touch on that cause that one was interesting. And that was kind of a case where, you know, I, I would say that I kind of practice a bit of like periodized carbohydrate intake. Mm -hmm. So that one was where like you've read a study that goes against kind of your previously held like beliefs. And obviously one study doesn't negate like kind of like the rest of sure. the research, but yeah. So this periodized carbohydrate study, it recently, um, it just recently came out and it was in elite cyclists. I think it was like 17 of them and they were younger. So like mid twenties or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and what they essentially did was divide them into two groups. Um, it was a five week study. So they did high carbohydrate group and a periodized carbohydrate group. So 
essentially what the periodized carbohydrate group was doing. They were doing all their lower, so zone one, zone two intensity sessions. It was like a fuel for the work required approach. So like mm -hmm. zone one, zone two sessions, they were fueling with like protein and some fat beforehand, no carbohydrates, and then no carbohydrates during. So they were essentially doing kind of like a quote unquote fasted exercise type of thing. High carbohydrate group was just like using carbs before, during, after training, like for the mm -hmm. entire time. Um, and again, only five, you know, five weeks, so like pretty short. But um, I thought what was interesting, they all, they all improved um, in like their maximal lactate steady state performance. So after like the training period, they improved. Um, but I guess one of the main findings was that the uh, periodized carbohydrate group didn't increase their fat oxidation more than like the high carbohydrate group uh, due to training. I guess neither one improved. I think there were like no differences in, mm -hmm. in improvements in fat oxidation. So, um, and I don't know if you read the study or not, but like, I was it, interesting before I even came here though, I was reading the table and they did the fat oxidation test during their, like a test to exhaustion. So like a time trial type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was really, it was low for one, which like kind of caught me off guard. I think it was like 0 0.3 grams per minute or something during okay. the, but it was a time to exhaustion test. So perhaps they were, you know, pretty high intensity. Yeah. It was double though that of the high carbohydrate group, but it like wasn't statistically significant. Oh, so one of those other things where you're <laughs> like um, sample size and, and things yeah. like that might matter. But overall, basically it was kind of just like they saw, they saw no difference, no benefits to the periodized carbohydrate uh, mm -hmm. approach, which one could say, oh, well, periodized carb is no better. So you can eat high carb all the time, but it was no worse also. So they maintained kind of their training output. They kind of maintained their performance or even improved their performance mm -hmm. similar to the high carb. So um, it's interesting because one of the benefits and one of the reasons why a lot of people do the periodized carbohydrate intake is for the benefit of improving their, their fat oxidation. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so based on the results of that study, and of course it's just one, but like that wouldn't necessarily support that it's, that it's any better. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think one of the reasons though might be they were highly trained athletes. They weren't sedentary sure. people or they won't, mm -hmm. weren't your just like average quote unquote exerciser. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, I mean, elite athletes are like fat burning machines already. So yeah. are you, are you going to see a benefit with periodized carbohydrate intake? And so that was, you know, it kind of just got me thinking one about my, my own training, my own like approaches, most of which is just like fasted training. Um, and you know why I do it, why I tell people to do it. It kind of like changed a little bit how I think about that, but mm -hmm. it was, a uh, it was kind of cool to see that study. I haven't read a periodized training study kind of in a while. So this was one of the first yeah. to be published in a while. So, so were they, I haven't looked at it closely, but so were they, were they eating the same amount of carbohydrate? It was just positioning or they, was there less carbohydrate? It was, it ended up overall being less. So I think the periodized carbohydrate group, it was, they were eating five and a half grams per kilogram per day. Okay. Um, so they were probably around maybe 300, 350 a day. And then the, it wasn't a drastic difference. So like then the high carb group was seven and a half, maybe eight grams per kilogram per day. So they okay. were more in the range of like five to 600. Okay. So it wasn't like quite double, you know, they were probably eating 200 ish mm -hmm. more grams of carbs per day. So maybe one of the reasons is that like carb was essentially matched, you know, but, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they were eating generally the same, I guess, but a little less. Yeah. I guess it would depend on the workload of the participants, but yeah, you could have a scenario where enough is enough mm -hmm. and then you don't see any difference versus, Oh, if you double the workload now, all of a sudden you do have a difference. But yeah, they were, the training program was pretty intense. Was I mean, it, they were doing, they were doing two days, most days. I mean, they were okay. doing probably, oh. I don't know what the hourly kind of like work or what their workload was. I mean, they had like 
it was pretty extensive, like the tables and stuff. And I didn't get to reading all those, but I mean, they were doing a pretty intense training approach, like two a days, most days. They also were doing like a lot of strength training. They mm -hmm. were doing intervals, I think maybe once or twice a week or something like that. So it was oh, yeah, pretty, so pretty decent it. workload. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That's interesting. It wasn't just your typical, like uh, 90 yeah. minutes a day exercise mm -hmm. training study. Yeah. Yeah. You would think you would make, you'd see a difference then mm -hmm. it just, uh, I mean, I would have, that's what I would predict if someone said, we got this study, what do you think it's going to say? So I guess you could, I wonder, cause when I think of like improving fat oxidation rates, I think of like, there's multiple levers you can pull. Mm -hmm. And one is just reducing your carbohydrate intake, which that one makes sense, mm -hmm. right? Like your body needs energy coming from somewhere. So if you don't have enough carbohydrate, it's going to get it from fat. Um, but then you can also do it through just training in general, just go from not running to running. You're mm -hmm. going to improve your fat oxidation rates. And then, um, my prior assumption was that like, yeah, there's like a spectrum where you can, you, you can position, or I shouldn't say a spectrum. You can just reposition carbohydrate more or less and see some di difference where it's like maybe one or two days out of the week, I go out for a run fasted with no mm. carbohydrate and over time, maybe that improves my fat oxidation rates. Um, there was a study that looked at carbohydrate type. I think that showed a very small difference, mm. but I don't know that it was really, I think it was, I think Dr. Mike Nelson was telling me about this one, like a long time ago, or he had sent to me an email. I don't think there was anything conclusive with it, but he's like, this is kind of interesting. They were actually looking at something where it would be basically like straight sugar versus maybe something a little like less abrupt, like sweet potato or something oh, like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like you would see a difference just, were they doing that like was the carbohydrate like positioned around the training session? So it was like what they were fueling. Oh yeah. I don't like know about that. Cause that could make a difference too. Yeah. Cause like you have that, if you have, if you have the sugar during your session, <laughs> then it may be much less of a impact than say, if you had it like in the afternoon after you were done training for the day. Yeah. Yeah. But I think too, with that study though, you know, I would have loved to also see like, like, like I mentioned the, the fat oxidation was measured during the post intervention, like time to exhaustion test. So like mm -hmm. my question would be, well, what if we measured them during this three hour, one of their three sure. hour training rides? Like mm -hmm. I would speculate that they may have improved their fat oxidation yeah. during the zone one, zone two, like intensity sessions, maybe not during the high intensity sessions. Mm -hmm. Cause they weren't, they weren't training with low carb availability during the high intensity training sessions. They were training, you know, just the, with the same amount of carbohydrates as the high carb group. So yeah. it's like, what, what is the intensity, you know, at which you're measuring fat oxidation that completely matters. So if you yeah. measured it at a different, during a different exercise modality, or maybe even at rest, like what would you see? So I don't think the study, you know, it's going to conclusively say that like periodized training is useless. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to continue to do it as are probably right. most people. Cause like, I think you can also lose your ability to oxidize fat if you keep, you know, if, if you fuel for, for every like workout mm -hmm. and whatnot. So, um, but it was, you know, it was an interesting, interesting one to see to kind of go against, or at least help you th think a little bit more uh, right. critically about like not just mindlessly believe what you and just continue. doing it because <laughs> for this reason, yeah, always yeah. updating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that is the reality. So yeah. interesting. So you're getting healthy again. You, you, well, you had an off season probably after the race anyway, so that's probably good timing in terms of letting things settle <laughs> yeah. down anyway. But uh, when do you start running again? Uh, Monday actually. So oh, really? I actually, okay. yeah, I did, it was interesting. I did something for the first time in a while. I like sat down last week and like put, drew myself out like a 10 week, just like training plan for now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not necessarily planning on doing a race in 10 weeks, but I may, I may try to do something. The goal this year is to, 
I have a bunch of friends running Boston next year, so oh, I got to cool. get a Boston qualifier some at yeah. some point. So uh, trying to do that, and then you know, I think for right now, it's just going to be the focus on like getting healthy and getting getting fit again. Although I think I maintained a lot of fitness just through like biking sure. and whatnot. But you know, just get healthy and then target some fall races and enjoy the the hot summer of yeah. training in Texas. Get through the hot summer. Yeah, I'm getting in shape right when the temperatures start to get into yeah. the <laughs> 80s and 90s. So perfect, perfect timing. Yeah. I actually I tend to enjoy like summer training. There's something fun about like embracing just like the miserable sure. heat and humidity like yeah, yeah it sucks sometimes but like there's uh it poses an additional challenge that's, well you were in florida fun. before this so yeah. you probably had it worse it wasn't there. a huge change yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there is there is there is that value at i think when you when the temperatures break in the fall you're just like oh i'm way more fit than i Man, thought i you was get that, <laughs> you get that crazy boost like the first time i remember like last summer just training all summer and the first time the temperature i went out for a run it was like 60 degrees i mean mm. i was running like six minute pace and it felt yeah. like you're just jogging like yeah that yeah. fitness your, your fitness just like spikes up it's incredible yeah it's pretty cool <laughs> awesome well brady it's always fun to chat with you we'll have to have you back on more frequently now that we're in the same area sure. and topics will come up i'm sure we'll want to talk about but where can listeners find you i know you're active on substack on twitter x and yeah mostly um mostly on twitter x uh, so b underscore homer um i'm pretty pretty active on there and then Substack, um, it's physiologicallyspeaking.com. I picked like the hardest <laughs> to spell domain name ever, uh, but that was the name of the blog before I got the domain. So, yeah. um, but if you probably search Brady Homer Substack, that would that would come up. But that's cool. where I'm posting most of my content now. We'll link that stuff to the show notes Sweet. and the episode landing page too, so listeners can head over and check that out. And I, I always enjoy getting the email notification <laughs> of a new Substack post, so I'm sure the listeners will enjoy some of it as well. Cool. Thanks, Zach, and thanks for the uh, S fuel. Yeah, I yeah. I you can get to, the granola. The granola yeah. police won't be on you as <laughs> I know <hard>. it. <laughs> cool. Appreciate it. Awesome. Take care. Thanks, you too, Zach. Hey, everyone. If you are here, you have stuck around to hear more about how I use the products that sponsor the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I have taken a lot of time identifying these products and brands. And I'm incredibly grateful that they are both products that I'm able to use sometimes on a daily basis, and they also are interested in supporting what I'm doing here at the Human Performance Outliers podcast and want to work with me. So here's how I use them. One of the reasons I came across S-Fuels originally is it maps my protocol perfectly. So at S-Fuels, they follow a principle of right fuel at right time. This means that they don't demonize carbohydrate, but they understand the power of a low carbohydrate diet. So throughout my year, I have ranging inputs between fats and carbohydrates, but they're always based in a foundation of fats. S-Fuels approach matches that just right. It allows you to build a foundation in your nutrition with fats but also gives you options to pull that powerful level that is carbohydrate when you need it. So in their product line, this is how I use it. Race Plus, that's their carbohydrate source. I'll use this for faster workouts or for races when I'm trying to defend muscle and liver glycogen. Train is their fat-based powder, which is basically a sports drink powder, but with fat instead of carbohydrate. Helps improve fat oxidation rates. I love it for workouts where I need some calories. I don't want to run a huge deficit, but I don't want to introduce carbohydrates. Side note, this actually makes a great high-fat smoothie as well. So if you're interested in that, check out my Instagram reels. I've got some smoothies on there that I've used this for. 
Revival is a protein powder that I will use post-workout and post-race a lot of times. This is something I can easily mix into something like full-fat yogurt or in that high-fat smoothie that I mentioned. Using this, just make sure I'm getting off on the right foot with the recovery process and maximizing my protein muscle synthesis. Next is Primed. Primed is my go-to caffeine source when working out. It gives you 80 milligrams of caffeine, but they make it in a way where it will help with focus, won't have jitters, and can help you with the fat oxidation benefits of caffeine consumption, as well as the reduction in perceived effort. Life bars are my go-to snack. If I'm doing a pretty big training block and I need something between meals, life bars give me some healthy fats and protein that'll fit right into that. Finally, Keto 3. Keto 3 is a product that I'll use basically to replace anything I would have used granola for in the past. So I keep a bag of this around and I can sprinkle that on top of things that I would have previously put granola on when I want to keep the fats and the proteins high and the carbohydrates low. If you want to learn more about these products or check them out, head over to sfuelsgolonger.com where you can get 15% off your order. And this year, stay tuned because I'm going to be doing a series of free sample pack offers from those products that I just talked about. Last year, some of my trail running friends told me I needed to check out this brand named John G. And when it came time to update my running apparel, I thought, okay, I'm going to check these guys out. I'm stoked that they want to work with me because I've ended up using this stuff for way more things than I actually thought I would. My main focus when I'm picking out workout gear and specifically running gear is how does it actually like sit on my body while I'm going through the different mechanics that are important to running or strength work and things like that. So the more a product can function the way it's supposed to, but stay out of the way, the better as far as I'm concerned. So they're kind of lightweight, breathable, moisture wicking type of setup works really well for me. Uh, they're shorts, they're AFO middle short. I actually got two pairs of these and I find myself using this for everything basically. Like I've used them for short intervals, I've used them for long intervals, taking them off for long runs, easy runs. I even go to the gym with them. So I need both those pairs. I've been going through them. They have an odor resistant uh, tack to it too. So I can usually get a few workouts out of them before I need to wash them. And I just find like my range of motion is great in it regardless of whether I'm doing those short intervals, long run in the gym doing uh, mobility routine type stuff or like muscular endurance strength stuff and all sorts of different activities. So that short is going to be in my rotation even when the, the temperature picks up. I got a couple long sleeve options too from them. There's the Repeat Merino long sleeve and the Rover Merino hoodie. So the Repeat Merino I've been using as kind of like a either a base layer if it's really cold out that I'll put on first and then something else over it. Or if it's just kind of chilly, wear like a t-shirt or a singlet isn't quite enough and I may want it for part of the run but not all the run or maybe I want it for the whole run but I don't want too much so I feel like I'm sweating profusely underneath that. This is perfect for that. So I'll use it over the singlet or just straight up first layer on and then something over top of it. The Rover Merino hoodie is one of the things that I'll use as kind of an outer layer. I'll put this over that Merino long sleeve. And this one has a few extra features to it. It's a little thicker, so I can get away with it in a little cooler, cooler weather. But it also has like a hood that you can put up and then a face mask that covers part of your face that you can use too if it gets especially chilly out there. Um, I've been using this both for the running workouts as well as taking it to the gym 
from a transportation standpoint as I'm getting there and then during my warm-ups and things like that as something I can kind of count on. Both these items are super light and packable too. So if I if I do have a scenario where I think I might need it for part of the workup and not all of it, I don't hesitate to bring it because I know I can take it off and store it pretty easily if I need to without having to worry about feeling like I've got this like extra thing coming with me that is getting annoying. The next item I got from there was the tights. Now, tights are products that I am very skeptical about usually because I always end up having this situation occur where they either feel like too tight and restrictive or they feel like they're sagging on me. So I'm either feeling restricted by them or if I don't feel restricted, I feel like I'm constantly trying to pull them back up or find a way to like fit them on me so they don't sag down. And it's just this constant battle where I just usually avoid wearing tights if I have to. These ones are much different than that. I'm loving these. I'm wearing these on all the cold weather days where I want that full protection layer. And they sit on me so perfectly. I can even stuff stuff in the side pockets. They've got these side pockets on either side. I put my phone in there. I've even taken my outer layer off and rolled it up and stuffed it in that side pocket. I don't feel like it's creating a situation where it's getting in the way or causing it to sag. Also, Full range of motion. I've used this for faster runs and slower runs, and that's usually my test. If I can do a speed workout in the short, in the in the tights, then uh, that's great because that means I'm I'm moving through my gait cycle smoothly. And if they're not sagging on top of it, that's a bonus. I also picked up their Atlas Multi-Pant, which is a little bit more robust than the tights. So if you're looking for something for more of an outer layer, a little warmer, this would maybe be a little bit of an option. I've been using it on colder days. Uh, for for running and just as a way to wear something warm to get to the gym or during my warm-up during that. I love these because they taper down really nicely so I'm not catching it on the side of my shoe as I'm going through my gait cycle or a movement in the gym. But they also have these really long zippers on the side. So if I do want to peel them off or put them on, I don't have to take my shoes off or feel like I'm fumbling around with it a lot. They also pack. They pack up real nicely too. So you can roll them up into the back pocket. And then if I do find that I'm taking them off partway through a workout, I don't feel like I have this like extra piece of gear that's like bogging me down much. If you're interested in checking out John G., you can get a 10% discount. Use promo code BITTER10, that's BITTER10, and go to johnji.com, that's J-A-N-J-I.com. And if you do like to shop at REI, they are also available there. Element Electrolytes has been my electrolyte of choice for quite some time now. They're actually back sponsoring the podcast for the third year. That's how long I've been using them. I actually got my sweat test done last summer where I found out that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of fluid that I lose. And it's not uncommon that I'll lose a liter plus of fluid per hour, especially when it gets a little bit warmer. So I'm usually using electrolytes in my workouts, especially as they go beyond an hour or if the temperatures are a little bit warmer or if I'm just going through a lot of fluids for one reason or the other. My protocol right now is I'll do a half a pack of one of their chocolate flavors in my coffee in the morning before my morning training session. And then I'll do another half a pack to a full pack of usually watermelon in my fluids that I'm taking on during and after that workout. Their product specifically has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. 
So you can go a long way with one packet. Some of the other flavors they have available are citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, chocolate caramel. They actually right now just rolled out their seasonal options. One reason to keep an eye on Element is they will do seasonal releases where they have limited offering, limited time offers. And right now their, their seasonal option is chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. If you check them out and you like that sort of idea of mixing something with your tea or coffee or your hot chocolate, if you want to make yourself some hot chocolate with this, you can do that. Definitely check out the mint and the chocolate raspberry. I love both of those. If you do want to try them out, you can actually get a free sample pack right now with your first purchase. You just have to go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Put in that forward slash HPO and that will offer up that free sample pack, as well as let them know that you're a supporter of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Delta G Ketones is a product I've been using for just over a year now. I started using them early last year as a a, a test to see if it was something I was going to want to use in my training and racing. I wanted to stress test them in something longer, so I actually used them at the Rocky Raccoon 100 as my first kind of test of will these handle for the duration of a hundred miler versus just what I would notice in kind of day-to-day workouts and things like that. And they are something that I'm going to keep in my routine. So my basic go-to is the Delta G performance. The reason I chose Delta G over all the other exogenous ketone supplements out there is they have a formula and a dosage that is supported by the research that we have to date. So they are the company that got the DARPA funding to design for special forces. They've been 50 plus published studies, 20 plus ongoing studies. My protocol with them is just to take a single bottle of that Delta G performance before a key workout or before a race. And if I'm going to be doing a race that spans longer than three hours, I will take another bottle every three hours while I'm out there. So if you're interested in more details about exogenous ketones and Delta G specifically, I would encourage you to check out episode 351, Exogenous Ketones and Performance with Brian McMahon. You can also right now on their website, they understand that this is something that is new for people and they want to make sure that you are using it right and that you know what you're doing. So you can do a free consultation with them if you go to their website at deltagketones.com. If you do decide, hey, I want to check this stuff out and see what my experience is like, you can get 20% off and let them know you support HPO by using promo code BITTER20. That's BITTER20 for 20% off at deltagketones.com. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 